Section 19 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 November Ides. The letters from Brisbane and Squires, which had been delivered by Sheriff Moore, did have some effect on the rest of the anti renters. Throughout the manor counties, Indian disguises became a thing of the past. Bright calico costumes were hemmed into dresses, window curtains, and bed quilts, and masks were burned or buried. On the slope of Old Clump above Roxbury, where young John Burroughs was to uncover it two years later, someone buried under a stone pile a hideous mask of stained leather with horns on the forehead and coarse animal hair glued on for a scalp-lock. The most revolutionary anti-renter had always realized that feudalism could not be defeated on the field of battle. Only the ballot could destroy that unholy alliance of wealth and government. Nevertheless, in the tenant's darkest hour, the Calico army had proved its worth. The Indians had kept the landlord's agents and the sheriff at bay until the movement could grow into a political force until it could stand the loss of its leaders without the slightest thought of retreat. Had not the Indians protected the livestock and the tools of the anti-renters from forced sales, anti-rentism would have been choked off in infancy in the ravines of the Helderbergs where it was cradled. Deprived of their means of livelihood, a few farmers would have been cuffed into submission, and dissuasion of the rest would have followed. The Indian riots also had focused national and even international attention on the existence of semi-feudal leases in the New World. Although the first impulsive resentment over the riots cost anti-rentism half of all the popular sympathy it might have gained from the public, the unjust enemy reprisals, vigilantism, wholesale arrests, corruption of the courts, and subversion of the state constitution to party interests brought about a popular revulsion. Silas Wright had sent the sheriffs to unmask the Indians, and in the end had himself been unmasked. The real issues emerged from the fabric of lies. Elements long critical of anti-rentism began to re-evaluate the principles at stake. A missionary sent by the Presbyterian Church of Delaware County to work among the anti-rent barbarians made the following report after a thorough study. I have found, to my very agreeable surprise, among the anti-renters, much the most intelligence, the most piety, and by far the most hospitality, and since I have become acquainted with the merits of their cause, I believe it to be just, and they have my sympathy. The Lutheran Herald, organ of another conservative group, deplored that in this boasted republic an extensive system of land ownership should be tolerated at war with the genius of our government, the character of our institutions, and the best interests of our society. The Fourierists, who had been alienated by the tenants' lawless invasion of the rights of property, now asked in the editorial columns of the Harbinger, what shall we say of the growing dissatisfaction with these, so to say, feudal tenures? Is no account to be taken of it? Is it to be smothered by the strong hand as coming solely from the great enemy? This is impossible. Our agrarian friends have too true a principle beneath their errors to be thus summarily disposed of. 
as proof that their strength did not lie solely in the leadership of such men as Dr. Boughton and William Brisbane, the farmers did not relax their efforts to achieve reform through legislation. If anything, their viewpoint was broadened by the experiences of that summer of 1845. Their newspapers began to talk the same language as Evans and DeVere, who in the Williamsburg shop that Sunday in February 1844 had discussed a new political alignment that would result in a Republican Party of Progress. One of the anti-rent papers declared, There never can be either national glory or wealth until a party shall arise that is, in truth and deed, anti-rent, nor until the doctrine of an equality, of compensation for labor and of time, and equal chances, is established upon the broad basis of equal rights, equal chances to all and privilege to none. The anti-rent party now forming may become the nucleus. The farmers' songs of emancipation dropped their stress on force and expressed a determination to work and vote. November Ides shall put to flight the imps of tyranny. No partisan of aristocracy saw the menace in the broadening crusade more vividly than James Fenimore Cooper, the squire of Otsego Hall. The danger from anti-rent doctrines was most to be apprehended, he felt, not from misguided and impotent beings who have taken the field in the literal sense, but from the educated classes who had taken it in the moral sense. Provincial notions that the tenures were opposed to the spirit of free institutions, notions spreading to the urban centers of culture far too swiftly for comfort, those were the real danger. On the anti-rent side, Ira Harris agreed with him. There lies the chief danger to this venerable and long-cherished relation between landlord and tenant, he said, employing a typical Cooper euphemism. Public opinion is brought to bear upon it. The educated classes are beginning to think and talk and act upon the subject, and this is the element of reform beyond the reach of sheriff's posses or military force or governor's proclamations. Landlords who had entrusted their fortunes to politicians now moved to salvage what they could. A dozen landholders in Delaware, Ulster, Sullivan, Schoharie, Columbia, Green, and Otsego counties made a general offer to sell all their lands on fair and equitable terms, and invited tenants to discuss purchase with them. Among the signatories were the Livingstons, the Verplanks, the Overings, and the Armstrongs. Earlier in 1845, Stephen Van Rensselaer IV had offered to waive the quarter sale for $30, and several credulous farmers had paid but the redrawn deeds were returned to them with a new clause inserted, calling for a double rent payment at every transfer of the land. When Lawrence Van Dusen called this to the attention of a legislative committee, he was brusquely interrupted by a landlord spokesman. That's a lie. Van Dusen did not have to answer, for he was upheld by a committee member who said, I have one of the deeds in my hand, and I have just read the very clause referred to. Now Stephen the Fourth made his third peace offer. The six percent formula, evolved by his own tenants in May of 1839, and later advocated by William H. Seward, was resurrected and proposed as something new. 
he was willing to sell for a sum which at six per cent would yield annual interest equal to the rent or about half the five dollars an acre he had previously demanded the freeholder commented that the present proposal might convince an unsuspicious public that mr van rensselaer was willing to make a reasonable compromise but again the patroon's offer actually applied only to the helderberg farms which did not have enough topsoil to fill an ox-cart the richest and most fertile portions of albany county were excluded even the albany argus admitted that the excluded tenants might have reason to complain and added the freeholder the day is gone when the tenants will be content with anything but justice in both major parties the internal conflict between reaction and progress was sharpened reformers like seward and greeley had done much to cut the whig party adrift from its aristocratic element and new blood was beginning to appear in the inner councils the same forces were working in the democratic ranks driving the hunkers and the barn burners farther and farther apart the once dependable anti-monopoly appeal of the democratic party and its old cry of popular rights had become meaningless dogma belied by the practice of friendship for land monopoly and landed aristocracy every signpost pointed to a political reshuffling just over the horizon again the anti-renters waited for the two parties to make their selections and then endorsed only the candidates who had consistently advocated adjustment of the feudal leases the whigs began a second courtship of anti-rentism the tenants were right wrote thurlow weed men who labored for their landlord with teams for a given number of days were neither substantial freeholders nor independent farmers these were feudal exactions and villain services not to be outdone the democrats made hasty pilgrimages to the farmers and the atlas wright's albany mouthpiece spoke approvingly of anti-rent objectives in delaware county sheriff moore and his political friends tried to win tenant votes by means of the letters he had delivered for brisbane and squires every effort was made to employ the sorrow the loneliness and the destitution of the frightened families of the prisoners to break anti-rentism as a political force for all time the politicians all but offered freedom for the prisoners if the anti-renters would abandon politics many including thomas devere were actually convinced that governor wright was planning to intercede to save edward o'connor and john van steenberg before the election devere went to see the governor and in a two-hour conference cited judge parker's prejudicial handling of the trials even in england famed for its oppression of political enemies of the ruling class he said such a miscarriage of justice has never been permitted silas wright was moved not so much by devere's appeal as by the realization that public opinion against the political aspects of the trials had crystallized even timothy corbin who had helped round up anti-renters for persecution was urging him to commute o'connor's sentence or extend a final pardon corbin wrote that there was no proof that edward had fired his gun but much proof to nullify that charge and he did not think that misguided caprice should select o'connor as the victim to suffer the death penalty when two hundred others who had been at the earl sale were equally guilty 
no one ever knew whether this was genuine conviction on corbin's part or another effort to break the political resolve of the anti-renters petitions came from all over the state demanding that the prisoners lives be saved even the delaware express lost its bloodthirstiness if the governor should see fit to commute their punishment far be it from us to oppose this act of mercy of this left-handed plea joseph hogue remarked a wolf when caught in a trap can be as tame as a lamb another factor was the astute legal opinions written for horace greeley's tribune by george clinton jr clinton held that the warrant under which the sheriff had acted was totally void and that Steele had been a trespasser on the earl property he had been the wrongdoer clinton said warning wright not to dispose of o'connor and van steenberg in prejudice passion and excitement they had been wrongfully indicted and convicted despite any possibilities of executive clemency the farmers did not relent throughout the fall campaign they aimed such fury at the governor that the atlas remarked on their spirit of intense hostility we do not deny it admitted the freeholder reminding its readers that wright had called the tenants insurgents rebels and outlaws whether he had been basely deceived by his political advisers or basely dishonest did not matter he had been responsible for these past six months of strife even the women joined in with a warning to silas wright and the opponents of anti-rentism published in one of their papers you may fix your cannon in exultation now but you will hear it answered at the polls with the voice of niagara you who have fattened upon office and power which we gave you your days are numbered your political heyday is over you are now in the sear and yellow leaf the people are about to take these matters in their own hands although silas wright's term had another year to go he could not help being worried about the effect of this agitation on the democratic majority in the legislature he finally called in john van buren michael hoffman peter kegger and other party leaders whose advice had brought him to such a pass the result was that a series of resolutions were adopted by democrats throughout the state viewing with unmitigated abhorrence those political demagogues who for personal or party purpose had fanned the flame and encouraged the deluded anti-renters and declaring that the governor's course relating to the unhappy difficulties between landlord and tenant met with their entire approval schenectady democrats disapproved of all political anti-rentism and called upon every supporter of democratic principle to withhold support and countenance from it party stalwarts elsewhere held that any man seeking election by pledging himself to stand by their cause may be a candidate for modern whiggery but will receive we trust the signal rebuke which his demagogism and hypocrisy so richly deserve buffalo found cato's swift action worthy of the highest commendation similar endorsements came from virtually every county in the state the farmers singled out the resolutions urging dissolution of their political organization as new evidence of Wright's aims. If we dissolve, said one leader, our enemies would pick us off in detail. We are not to be wheedled out of our objective by political jugglery. No man can be at one and the same time a friend of law and order and an anti-renter, was the slogan endlessly repeated by the Silas Wright press. 
Finally, in desperation, the friends of the governor adopted Indian tactics. Thugs were sent from Albany to break up anti-rent political rallies. Speakers were threatened with tar and feathers and pelted with rotten eggs. But this time the sheriff did not come with a posse, and Wright did not drum for law and order. On election day the farmers were up before daylight. By noon the horses and wagons crowded the roads, bringing in the voters. The results exceeded their most sanguine expectations. Democratic Party strategists had considered it political wisdom to destroy anti-rentism, assuming that the votes gained outside the feudal counties would more than make up for the loss of the tenant's support. But they were disappointed. The farmers piled up an anti-rent Whig majority of more than 7,000 in the traditionally Democratic manor districts, thus, as Ira Harris remarked, by one blow annihilating the entire majority by which Silas Wright had risen to power the year before. The call for a constitutional convention was carried by more than 200,000 votes, and the tenants elected 14 out of a total of 128 members of the legislature. Great fires burned in the towns, and horns threw the news from valley to valley. Despite the presence of the state militia, anti-rentism carried up-rent Delhi. Let the log jails be now chopped into firewood and distributed to the poor, advised the freeholder. It will be the first instance in which the poor ever found comfort from the walls of a prison. Joseph Hogue, the schoolmaster, sent a jubilant letter to the anti-rent press. Truth, as she always does and is ever destined to, triumphed over oppression, monopoly, and the combined hosts of her enemies, he wrote. And indeed, those who sought to palsy those whose aim was to restore to all equal rights are indeed crestfallen. The conservative press could only deplore the sordid interests of the tenantry, and fear that politicians would go on truckling to anti-rentism until the rights of property were overthrown, and everybody was reduced to the sad condition of the Van Rensselaers. After the election was over, and the fate of O'Connor and Van Steenberg could no longer affect votes, the politicians and uprenters who had been the loudest in favor of clemency now called upon Governor Wright to hang them, on the ground that the people of Delaware County had shown by their large anti-rent vote that they were not subdued. The Methodist chaplain of the Delhi jail admitted candidly to Joseph Hogue, Both of them have confessed to me all that they have done, and I am firmly convinced of their innocence. Though they were there, armed and disguised, I am certain that they had no more to do directly with the death of Steele than the others. But he could not sign a petition for reprieve, he said, because he had been told that some of the anti-renters had threatened to avenge their death. If that is so, he added, I only wish there were more to be hung. On November 22nd, one week before the scheduled hanging, Governor Wright commuted the death sentences to life imprisonment. Defending the trials, as regular and in conformity to the law, he explained that he was saving the prisoners' lives in answer to appeals, even though he could find no evidence that they had surrendered all disposition to resist the law. He was influenced principally, he said, by petitions describing O'Connor as far from mediocrity, of irreproachable character, loved and esteemed by all who had the honor of being acquainted with him. 
when the governor's commutation order reached the prisoners the delaware express reported edward and john leaped about like madmen two hours later they were on their way to sing sing guarded by forty soldiers after boarding a boat at Catskill, Edward wrote to Reverend John Graham, giving the letter to Sheriff Moore for delivery. Six weeks I was under the sentence of death, which was more punishment than I thought I ought to have had, but still I am now to commence a new era. Could my countrymen have but known what clearness of conscience I have in this matter, they would never have sent me down the river. But the law holds me in this case, and I feel thankful that my countrymen sympathize with me. Much of the long letter which the preacher received was, surprisingly enough, devoted to Sheriff Moore and his friends. I must speak of them in the highest praise for their kindness to me. I am surprised to hear it said that I have been in irons in a room that I could not stand up in, also that I was not well fed. I deny it in toto. If you believe yourself and say, Peace, 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 and do what you can to make peace, it will be better for all the prisoners. Oh, beware, my friends, I have been in an awful school already, and God knows what still awaits me. If you ever have any more opposition to the law, Lord only knows what will be the consequence or where will be the end. If you take my advice, you will turn right. Right wrongs no man and only return me to my friends, to society, and to God. The letter even praised Silas Wright. Later O'Connor charged that Sheriff Moore had copied his original draft and distorted the contents. Needless to say, he said, he was much abused in Delhi. True, he had written a letter on the boat, yet never had he written such encomiums nor such lavish praise of the officials of Delhi, at all events, he said flatly, I deny the tenor that it breathes as not being a production of mine. Winter came to the Catskills and the Helderbergs, the Blenheim and Grafton Hills, burying them in snow. Columbia County became a rolling blanket of white. It had been a hard, bitter year for the farmers, but they had gained votes in the legislature and won the struggle for a constitutional convention, they could turn to winter work with energy and confidence. There were kegs to be made, bark to be cut for the tanneries, and saplings to be gathered for barrel hoops. On Dingle Hill the fields that Moses Earl had made productive were cold and white. Sparrows rustled in the weed-stalks above the fence where Osmond Steele had fallen. Sarah Earl carried on as Moses had asked her to. She was sensible for her age, reported Joseph Hogue after talking to her before the roaring fire in the earl farmhouse but she wept when she told him her troubles she was oppressed by debt and now with her husband in prison it would take the annual proceeds of the farm to pay for hire three days before christmas governor wright recalled the troops that were still occupying delhi if evil influences shall hereafter be carefully avoided and bad counsel firmly resisted by those who once yielded to dangerous delusions, his message read, insurrection will not again make its appearance, and time, forbearance, and good conduct will soon wear out the deforming traces of that which has terminated. In January 1846, Silas Wright suddenly found feudal tenures proper subjects for legislative inquiry and discussion. 
There was no embarrassment in his blue-gray eyes and round florid face when he told the legislature so in his annual message. He had no difficulty in rationalizing his reversal of policy. A year before he had refused relief on the grounds that the tenants came with unclean hands, and that the issue was not the justice of their cause, but the preservation of peace and the suppression of armed rebellion. Now the situation had changed. True, the spirit of defiance continued to be manifested in individual cases, but it was no longer general. He charged the legislature to act promptly to rid the state of the awful ghost of feudalism. Observed the freeholder, the trick of pretending to be precluded from discussing the real merits, not having succeeded according to expectation, the governor now finds it convenient to assume, what was just as true last year as this, that there is no real excuse for not entering upon discussion. The editorial went on to say that Silas Wright had magnified, distorted, and warped the riots to his own use, only to discover in the end that the people were with the farmers, in fancying it was as patriotic to prevent a poverty-stricken tenant from being turned out of his house and home, as it was to empty a cargo of tea in Boston Harbor. The Democrats climbed aboard the bandwagon of reform with such celerity that only the calico dresses, the sound of the tin horn, and the rattle of sabers was missing. Benjamin Bailey, one of Wright's most talented friends, who had felt in 1845 that there was no authority upon which the legislature could act, now called upon the lawmakers to remove the evil, unrepublican, and degrading tenures, which he suddenly found to be a fungus upon the body politic. "'Imagine my surprise,' said Henry Z. Hayner, the Whig anti-renter who had been one of Dr. Boughton's attorneys, when I found not a gentleman but was ready and willing, nay anxious, to do them ample and speedy justice, to search diligently to find a remedy for their grievances.' Ira Harris listened sardonically, as paraphrases of his own words came from the lips of the very men who had accused him of sedition, but he was willing to accept them into the ranks. I know that eleventh-hour conversions are always suspect, he said, on the floor of the legislature. Still, I am not disposed to scrutinize too closely the motives of the gentlemen placed in circumstances so embarrassing— nor to inquire too carefully into the reasons which have induced them to change ground. I am willing that their deeds shall speak for them. The Democrats did their best to shut out the Whigs from any participation in the reform action to which they had been forced. Those who have borne the heat and burden of the day need repose, said Benjamin Bailey, suggesting that Ira Harris should be spared the ordeal of serving on the committee to draft the relief for the tenants. When Harris declined to be relieved, Bailey turned on him for attempting to monopolize anti-rentism. The hue and cry was immediately raised that the party of the responsible majority was in danger, and that Silas Wright would not have a fair chance. During the bitter debate that followed, the Democrats blamed former Governor Seward for the whole anti-rent crisis. Ira Harris retorted that, far from provoking disturbances, Seward had exerted influence toward quieting the resistance. Even after the legislature had refused to act on Seward's 1840 recommendations, the tenants had continued to petition legally. Harris pointed out that in 1844 the legislature had answered the tenants' complaints 
with that infamous Judiciary Committee report. I charge upon the author of that report all the disorder and violence, he said. There the germ was planted which has produced all these evils. Until then a disposition had been manifested at least to listen to the complaints of these tenants. But in that report, exhibiting much sophistry, all hope was extinguished. They were told that there was no relief for them, that they must submit to their condition, that the degradation and hardships existed but in their imagination. The acrimony finally subsided with the appointment of a select committee, headed by Samuel J. Tilden of New Lebanon, Columbia County, a tested friend of Martin Van Buren. Tilden's task was to save the party from its anti-rent blunder, and the choice was ideal. East of the Hudson, farmers knew and liked young Tilden. He had spoken strongly against the powerful financial interests which introduced into legislation influences the most subtle, founded on interests the most selfish, and the avaricious few who controlled legislation in order to concentrate and perpetuate their wealth. The appointment of the committee heralded a distinct advance for the tenants, but de Vere was quick to see that they could not afford to sit back and wait for results. Seeking to make doubly sure that the farmers had a voice in the legislative session and the approaching constitutional convention, de Vere urged a state anti-rent meeting to draft a program. Ira Harris strenuously opposed it, fearing that the farmers might demand sweeping changes that would upset his strategy of giving them moderate reforms while appeasing the conservatives. Through the freeholder, still edited by his Whig friend Alexander Johnson, he said there was no need for a convention since the farmers' cause was in able hands. De Vere promptly urged the farmers to repudiate the freeholder and keep the anti-rent party from falling into the hands of a central clique who would control even the calling of conventions. Ira Harris had sidestepped this head-on clash with de Vere as long as he could, but in the face of increasing objection from the conservatives, he could no longer uphold the free-soil policy or risk de Vere's influence with the anti-renters. Accordingly, the freeholder did not try to defend its opposition to the meeting, but opened a barrage against the instigator, characterizing de Vere's farmer supporters as the mistaken adherents of a false-hearted and double-tongued man. If they actually knew de Vere, the freeholder declared, they would kick him out of their presence as unceremoniously as they would an ill-natured and unmannerly cur. His vanity, his assumption of infallible judgment upon all things, his dictatorial conduct, his acts of petty tyranny, his ungovernable temper and unregulated tongue are wholly unbearable. Wherever this man has been, he has been an instrument of evil and an agent of mischief. Too vain and presumptuous to act a subordinate part, he is too rash and indiscreet to be a leader. Nevertheless, Thomas de Vere won the first round, for on February 27, 1846, despite the snow blocking the roads, the anti-rent delegates gathered at J. H. Lockwood's across the street from the state capitol. Thurlow Weed and other top-ranking Whigs rushed to the meeting to protect party interests, but de Vere was elected secretary, and the most strenuous Whig efforts failed to head off the farmer's demand for the right to contest the landlord's titles. Even de Vere was surprised at his strength. 
a comprehensive program of legislative needs was drawn up and taken across the street to the tilden committee by a delegation which included dr frederick crowns amos loper lawrence van dusen john slingerland john mayhem and the rev hezekiah pettit five weeks later on april second at the albany county convention to nominate delegates to the coming constitutional convention de vere was still in the ascendancy he was named secretary of the meeting and chairman of the resolutions committee although he did not wish to expose himself to the charge that he was seeking office he was nominated as a delegate and received five votes on the first ballot in spite of having withdrawn his name he then called upon the convention to nominate horace greeley or someone else who would embody the principle of the free soil movement his enemies were able to block this move but the final program for constitutional reform was anything but whig inspired the tenants passed a resolution that the landlord's titles required more substantial proof than the mere word of the patroon it read we hold it to be the first and most sacred duty to take such measures as will tend to establish in this republic the principle of freehold soil having once put our hand to the plough we will never look back until we have reached our just and noble object in the entire enfranchisement of those fields which the swords of our fathers redeemed from the english kings and the axe of our fathers redeemed from the primeval forest meanwhile the tilden committee had finished its investigation and on march twenty eighth submitted to the legislature a report embodying all the suggestions made at the february twenty seventh meeting except those referring to pardons and the right to test the landlord's titles with what ira harris called great force and ability tilden had analyzed the evils of the leases and had recommended uncompromising destruction of the feudalistic manners which had been perpetuated by the old federalists william h seward's criticisms in eighteen forty had not been more conclusive the tilden report declared that the tenants had not exaggerated the evils of the tenures experience and observation had proved their charges to be true successful husbandry demanded a sense of complete ownership which the leasehold system prohibited moreover the leases were impediments to a free exchange of the lands and tended to restrain labor from seeking through shifting employments the habit and opportunities of enterprise and they made an invidious distinction in favor of a particular class of creditors as a remedy tilden favored such taxation of the landlord's reservations as would discourage these investments which have been found contrary to just public policy further and this was his most daring proposal he would not only limit all future agricultural leases to ten years but would break up the estates upon the death of their present owners by the exercise of the unquestionable power of the legislature over the statutes of devise and descent he would then transfer the landlord's rights and interests to the tenants on equitable terms the landlords were shocked into new and desperate political activity they beset members of the legislature in all places stephen van rensselaer invited a large number to dine with him perhaps the freeholder commented he thinks good dinners good wines and good horses will be weighty arguments in his favor joshua spencer a patroon petted legislator 
did his best to stem the tide of reform in the Senate, the last stronghold of conservatism. As a member of the Senate Select Committee, he filed a minority report opposing all relief for the farmers. The tenants could get any necessary redress, he explained, by availing themselves of the landlord's disposition to voluntarily sell out their interests. Mr. Spencer, observed the freeholder, has rooms in the house of the patroon's pastor. He is himself a member of the church. This report was surely ushered into the world with due religious ceremony, drawn up, read, and approved by the committee on Sunday, in the house of the minister of the gospel, the pastor of the patroon, it must be the offspring of holy thoughts, and may be truly denominated a sanctified report. Pamphlets flowed from the presses of the landlord aristocracy, crying out against the injustice. Landlords would be robbed because they had so few votes compared with those who were to benefit by the robbery. The taxing of landlords was a violation of the spirit of the state constitution, if not the letter. The purpose was not to raise revenue, but to coerce them into selling or abandoning their property. Daniel D. Barnard's defense of the manor system, originally published in the American Review, was reissued in pamphlet form and distributed throughout the state. All the trouble, said Barnard, sprang from the agrarian spirit of the times but he was confident that there were too many men of property and too many creditors, as well as too much principal, to allow debts in any form to be repudiated. He appealed to the farmers to give up their political activity. God help the poor if they must needs add hatred and envy and malice and strife to the necessary evils of poverty. He defended the quarter-sale reservation, as the patroon's far-sighted effort to exclude dangerous or improper and unprofitable intruders from the property. As for the farmers, they should consider it a privilege to have been permitted by their labors to have made worthless land worth ten dollars an acre. A beehive is not the only community in which drones live on honey gathered by another's labor and industry, answered the freeholder. James Fenimore Cooper was more vituperative than usual, the hope of civilization had never been darker. Anti-rentism was tyranny in its worst form. Tilden's proposals were thimble-rigged, designed to conciliate three or four thousand voters who were on the market, at the expense of those who, it was well known, were not to be bought. The tax, to choke off the landlords, was a disgrace to civilization, an outrage on liberty. Tilden's proposal to break up the estates had put a premium on murder at which, said Cooper, the farmers had proved themselves expert. Squire Cooper's concept of democracy was outraged. Democracy was a lofty and noble sentiment, and such injustice and roguery had no place in it. The most civilized countries on earth were under the leasehold system, and the relation of landlord and tenant was entirely natural and salutary. Editors of the anti-rent press turned literary critic with zeal, it would be unfair to call Cooper a demagogue, the freeholder commented. He hates and despises the people too much to flatter them. But we give him no credit for honesty in his course. A man so filled with vanity and ill-nature could not please if he tried. If he should attempt to smile, he would frown, and if he meant to laugh, he would snarl and growl. Mr. Cooper is a cynic, a sneering philosopher, 
cooper had by artful contrasts and skilled array of falsehood made rogues of the tenants in his novel the redskins his landlords are well-educated elegant accomplished and liberal gentlemen and his tenants are coarse ignorant selfish and hypocritical boors the freeholder read cooper's own opinion of universal suffrage into a speech by one of his characters i suppose quite three-fourths of the whole population are opposed to it in their hearts hugh littlepage's remark in the redskins was pointed out as revealingly autobiographical for a moment as i gazed on the broad view i felt all my earlier interest in it revive and am not ashamed to own that a profound feeling of gratitude to god came over me when i recollected it was by his providence i was born the heir to such a scene instead of having my lot cast among the serfs and dependents we presume said the freeholder he would restore the old property qualification and apply it to the whites as well as the blacks the man is no democrat at all who would make any distinction between man and man in political rights and privileges on account of his color property or employment the man who does so has still to learn the first lesson in democracy owing to cooper's admiration for french and english society the freeholder went on he wanted to introduce the same social distinctions in this country and pretended to think them compatible with democracy he would persuade us all the land should first be given to a few favored families in order to raise up and perpetuate a class of liberal and cultivated gentlemen who shall be supported in ease and affluence by the labor of their tenants and who are to repay the toil of their humble servitors by setting them examples of intelligence polished manners and high moral training all the clamor of the wealthy landowners was unavailing the time had come tilden's proposals to limit the term of agricultural leases and to break up the feudal estates on the death of the present owners passed the assembly and were defeated in the conservative senate but on may thirteenth eighteen forty six both houses of the new york state legislature voted to tax the landlord's income from the long-term leases and to outlaw the seizure and forced sale of tenant property for non-payment of rent at the tenant's insistence ira harris sponsored two independent measures covering the points neglected by the tilden report one calling upon governor wright to pardon the anti-rent prisoners the other creating a commission to investigate the landlord's titles to their estates both measures were defeated but the strength of the farmers united political action could no longer be denied democracy was emerging from theory into practice and the legislature was at last forced to accept the will of the people on june first the constitutional convention opened in albany to remain in session till october ninth for the first time in the history of the state no great names dominated these meetings fifty-three of the delegates were farmers or mechanics who were determined to get rid of federalism as well as feudalism while the democrats cited the bible to prove that the negro was destined to occupy an inferior social position the anti-renters demanded equal rights without regard to race and asserted that there should be no qualifications for any right trust or profession except merit integrity and ability one of the farmers major goals was the extension of local self-government to provide for the election of judges 
and top-ranking state officers formerly appointed by the governor. This was their reply to Silas Wright's removal of Commissioner Russell Dorr in 1845, and his use of Attorney General John Van Buren as his personal agent against anti-rentism. In the case of the elective judiciary, the farmers had more in mind than ridding the courts of political dependency. New blood was needed to make the administration of justice a living process. Old lawyers seldom make good judges, declared the freeholder. They have so long been accustomed to enlist on one side of every case that it is hard to weigh both sides impartially. They are apt upon the start to get bias one way or the other. Similar criticisms of the courts were made from the convention floor. The judiciary had worked well for an unprincipled portion of a privileged order of men, one of the delegates said. The courts had deeply humbled and disgraced the state, another charged, and were guilty of log-rolling and lobbying. Though he too argued in favor of an elected judiciary, Ira Harris reassured the conservative delegates by making a spirited defense of Judge Amasa J. Parker for his handling of the anti-rent trials at Delhi. Judge Parker had sentenced more than a score of unfortunate men, and yet, said Harris, I would scarcely venture to accept a nomination for judge in opposition to that distinguished judge. So ably and faithfully has he discharged his delicate and responsible duties. Later events suggested that Harris had made a deal with the American Jeffreys, whereby he would deliver an anti-rent endorsement to Parker, in return for hunker votes for himself when the judiciary became elective. The anti-renter fairly sizzled with de Vere's reply. Now, men, are ye men at all? Are ye citizens of the North America Republic? Do you live in the present enlightened age? And will you permit this man to tie down your intellectual faculties, to lead captive your common sense, to chain you to that car of his ambition from which he spits down upon ye the very filth of his insults and contempt? Oh, men and brethren, rouse, rouse, and do not give yourself up to bondage so detestable. Prove to the political office dealers that their standing axiom, the people can be humbugged, in your case at least, is not true. Alexander Johnson hastened to uphold Harris's defense of Judge Parker in the freeholder. He avowed his complete confidence in Parker's integrity, honesty, and uprightness. If the judge lost his equanimity and impartiality at Delhi, it was simply because he was caught in a tide of hate and revenge. But if God spared him, he would be a light to his profession, an ornament to the bench, and an honor to his state. Johnson pitied de Vere's infirmity by reason of which he cannot differ from a man without quarreling with him, and cannot disapprove and censure a man's conduct without hating him and vilifying his public and private character. De Vere charged that the tenants had cheated themselves of real constitutional reform by electing knaves and fools as delegates. The freeholder passed off the attack, explaining that de Vere was revengeful because neither Horace Greeley, nor George H. Evans, nor Alvin Bovey, to whom, besides himself, he condescends to concede a modicum of brains and a small measure of wisdom, were elected delegates. In spite of the clash of interests and ambitions, the Convention approved of an elective judiciary. It was a real victory for the farmers. 
but they achieved their most important triumph when the leasehold system came up for debate. Feudal landlordism, said George Clyde, whom the tenants called on to handle their side, originated in power and craft, if not by fraud. He described the land barons as a small class of men living idly and sumptuously on the toil of others, through leases skillfully and cunningly devised to keep the farmers inferior, mere serfs and vassals, hewers of wood and drawers of water. After the discussion, substantial relief was voted for the tenants. Under the new state constitution, no more feudal leases could be issued, and some of the worst features of the existing leases were eased. In order to prevent a recurrence of anti-rent difficulties, the revised statutes prohibited the lease of agricultural lands for a longer period than twelve years, and outlawed all fines, quarter sales, and similar restraints upon the transfer of title. But the victory was not complete. The existing leases still stood. There was satisfaction in knowing that, as George Clyde said, the reforms would eventually wear out and destroy the existing evils. Still, there was an untried battlefield. Now that justice could be anticipated from an elected judiciary, the farmers could and would test the legality of the reservations in the leases. End of section 19. Recording by Maria Casper.